Yeah, Latin America is in transition. If you didn't know, this is Think Tech Hawaii. <laughs> it's the three o'clock block on a given Wednesday. And Carlos Suarez, the regular host of Global Connections, is here to join us with this beautiful Latin American painting in the background, which I really like very much. Welcome to the show, Carlos. Great to see you always, Jay, and reconnect. And let me clarify, this is not a painting. It's a picture. And actually, it's a real street in the, in the state of Puebla. You recall some years ago, I spent uh, actually several years in Mexico, Mexico City, but also more recently Puebla, this very historic city to the east. Uh, and so uh, today, uh, it's a great opportunity, as you know, from time to time, we connect and, and try to, you know, uh, see what's going on around the world, uh, you know, and the global connections, of course, it both connects us to the world, but it brings the world to Hawaii, to think to Hawaii. Uh, and in this case, uh, as you also well know, I get to put on my little professorial hat today a little bit to to share uh, both an update, but sort of a political analysis of what's, uh, what's happening in this region of Latin America, uh, and why should it even matter to us, uh, as I was suggesting, and you'll see some, some data later, it is increasingly clear, clear that this is a region where now there's a sort of a more geopolitical competition happening between China and the U.S., between China and Taiwan, actually in Central America, and I'll, I'll make some reference to that in a moment. But even more importantly, I mean, you know, we have to remind ourselves, well, in Hawaii, understandably, we have a focus to the Asia and, and you know, Asia Pacific region. But Latin America, I would remind our listeners and, and, and us that uh, it is a region that is extremely vital to the U.S. for many, many reasons. For trade, our most important trade partner is Mexico. Uh, and if you add Canada to, you know, what we would call the Americas, uh, but in general, Latin America is the largest source of our immigration, uh, and so cultural ties, put your family uh, and, and connection. Um, it is the largest growing population, you know, surpassing African Americans. And uh, and, and yet we places, know so little about it, you know. Oh, it's like we stopped yeah, at the Monroe doc Doctrine in 1828. Yeah, yeah. It's really yeah. remarkable how little Americans know about south of the border. You know, we study yeah. Europe, we study Africa, as you said, we study Asia, we study all the continents, but we don't study our closest neighbors in, in Latin America. And that means uh, following their political activities, their economic activities, their social activities. Um, and, you know, and, and regrettably, from a political point of view, we don't help them as much as we should. We should be all one yeah. continent and we're not. So I think it's very important that we have a show like this so you can bring us current on what's going on there and raise our level of awareness about the good things and the bad things that are happening in yeah. Latin America. So you want to focus on certain countries. What countries do you want to focus on? Yeah. Well, let me give a, a because as we speak now, there's been a, some interesting dynamics in, in the last uh, weeks and months in particular, a lot of political transitions, new presidencies coming in and, and, and some about to happen still. Uh, but obviously, as you mentioned earlier, it's important we have to understand there's a long historical context of U.S. and Latin America, and it's a very, you know, it's a tumultuous history. The U.S. has been very much an active intervention in many countries, and so I say that because from the perspective of Latin America, there's a lot of, there's a healthy dose of skepticism. There's a lot of sort of anti-Americanism because it's been very real that they have been both uh, at different times, you know, either, and again, it varies different countries in different ways whether it's direct interventions or the support of previous military governments, very repressive regimes that were in the region, particularly in the 60s, 70s, into the 80s. Uh, anyhow, um, what I'm always fascinated about Latin America, of course, it's a big region. We've seen the map. It spans, you know, from the neighbor of Mexico, the large country to the south, which is the largest of the Spanish-speaking, all the way to South America, the, you know, the, the southern cone, the Argentina, Chile, Uruguay. 
of course, Brazil, a very important player in the global economy and also the leader of Latin America, a Portuguese speaker. So it's kind of in some ways culturally rather outside of the rest of the region, which is all primarily Spanish-speaking. But what I want to also say, and then we'll turn now to these cases, uh, um, the region is fascinating because it is a paradox. It is both a young, new, you know, new, it's a new society, the, the combination of the, the Spanish who came in colonized, mixing in with indigenous in many places, many immigrant populations from Asia, from Europe, from Africa, all over the region. It's a very multiracial, uh, multi-ethnic uh, society. Again, I'm just speaking very broadly. All the countries will vary. Uh, but it's young, but it's also very old. We have ancient civilizations that are, you know, been there for, you know, millennia. Um, it's also a paradox because it is both tumultuous. And as we'll see in a moment, it, you know, we see more of the same military coups or, or you know, military uh, in politics. Corruption is rampant, uh, you know, inequality, injustice, uh, political violence, again, a history of it. And yet it's also very stable. Traditional societies, uh, you know, the pull of history. So real briefly, I think our first picture, we have a snapshot, just, to, you know, some interesting news in the past week. We've seen about two weeks ago the election uh, in the small country of Honduras, a tiny, you know, the banana republic uh, country. Uh, but we have the first female woman, uh, Xiomara Castro. She's the wife of a former leftist president uh, who was deposed by a military coup back in 2009. And so uh, Honduras, this tiny country, really the most uh, impoverished of, of the main Central American ones. Uh, and one uh, where very interestingly, she is uh, coming kind of in, into office now uh, sort of as a leftist. And she has signaled that she is going to plan to establish diplomatic relations with China. This is important because it turns out China and Taiwan have been, you know, sort of struggling or not struggling, they've been fighting over uh, the recognition that still a handful, I think today it's only about 12 countries, mostly in Africa and Latin America, maybe a few in the South Pacific, that continue to recognize Taiwan. Uh, and that includes Honduras. Well, this new president has signaled she's planning to change that. Uh, China um, has just won the same change of allegiance from Nicaragua, a neighboring country there, where uh, if we turn actually, the next picture I have is, of course, uh, the more things change, the more they remain the same. We just had a recent election in Nicaragua that re-elected Daniel Ortega. And, and, and you and I are old enough to remember 1979, the Nicaraguan Revolution. He comes to power sort of, you know, 20 years after Fidel Castro, like another, you know, sort of protege, uh, you know, anti, you know, um, American, anti-capitalist, anti-establishment. 40 years later, he's still there and managing to kind of reinvent himself elected with his wife as the vice president. So talk about cronyism and nepotism and, and basically, you know, this revolution that was, uh, you know, a very significant 40 years ago has left us now with, uh, you know, sort of a, a new form of authoritarianism and, and, and you know, a new variation. Uh, but let's continue briefly. Again, I'm going to move rather quickly. I, I, oh, well, just to mention Nicaragua, because what happened there is that uh, uh, Daniel Ortega, just cut off diplomatic ties with Taiwan, uh, and uh, as a result, the, the, the China, mainland China, has just delivered one million COVID vaccines to Nicaragua, uh, a country that has you know, a very low rate of uh, vaccination so far. It's very poor. So in effect, you know, a form of uh, vaccine diplomacy, you might say, but it, it comes in the context of this Taiwan-China struggle that's been going on in Central America for some time now. Well, Carlos, it sounds like there's a, a quid pro quo thing going on where China comes around and says, hey, we want you to separate from Taiwan and get closer to us and we will give you economic benefits. We will help you. 
um, that's, that's, that's a little disconcerting, but there you have it. And so one after the other, they fall for that line and drop and drop Taiwan. This is really too bad, isn't it? Yeah. Well, look, uh, I mean, just to step back and, and not to be cynical, I say, look, Taiwan has its own version of it. They'll come in and provide development assistance, build some hospitals, you know, provide a form of almost like Peace Corps aid to, the Central Amer to these countries in, in, in return for their recognition. Uh, and so it doesn't come just out of these countries deciding, hey, they like Taiwan for some reason. Taiwan has been very effective at, 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 at nurturing those relationships and basically, you know, buying their allegiance in different ways. Now they're losing out. And, and, and for a while, China and Taiwan had kind of agreed to stop doing that because they kept plucking each other's, you know, last remaining ones. And, and Taiwan was getting a few more, buying off them. And, and meanwhile, China was picking them off. Today, I think it's down to about 12. So they've kind of, they're, they're losing them. And Honduras, I just mentioned, is about to announce that the new president is saying, well, let's move forward quickly. And because I want to get us to talk really as well about the role of China, which is a, another issue. But in the third country uh, that's had some recent political change and, and interesting dynamics, Peru, uh, this country in, in the Andes of, 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 uh, of uh, South America, back in July, after a very long and drawn out process of recounting and a very contentious second round election, uh, it brought to power a new president, uh, uh, Pedro Castillo, and he is basically a primary school teacher. Sort of, you know, of a, he grew up with basically a very impoverished, illiterate peasant family. So kind of the rags to riches. Now, he's not a particularly, let's say, intellectual or bright. I mean, he's a primary school teacher. I don't mean that in an offensive way, but he doesn't come to the political office as typically you might out of, you know, some kind of, uh, if not a political, at least business, uh, you know, experience. He's a school teacher. But he, in some ways, filled a void because there's been so much tumultuous politics and, and corruption scandals. Peru has gone through a cycle of presidents that have been essentially uh, impeached and, and pulled out of office, resigned uh, in the last few years. Uh, and, you know, sort of a, there was a while where it had been relatively stable, but uh, most recently it's had more troubling times. Uh, anyway, this guy comes into office. He's had a pretty rough going uh, in part because he's kind of fumbled along the way, hasn't had a real cohesive strategy. And very curious, what happened is just in the last days, Mexico, a country, uh, you know, as you well know, AMLO now in the middle of his six year term, has more or less stayed closed inside Mexico. He's not known for his foreign policy, international relations at all. Non-interference, you know, it's a traditional Mexican strategy. Well, right now, Mexico has sent a team down to Peru in some ways to help support that president and a team of financial advisors and sort of government public policy specialists to try to give them some help, which is very curious. It's again, different Mexico normally doesn't do this. It kind of stretches outside of this non-interference, uh, you know, policy that they always have. But, uh, you know, this leader in Peru has had a rough time uh, inside. Uh, they're trying to squeeze him out. It's a very polarized environment, needless to say. So in Mexico, separately, you've got this President AMLO, who, uh, aside from that, you know, foray into South American politics, He's also been sort of knocking heads somewhat with the U.S. because he's got a very, you could say, strong nationalistic, but in some ways, some argue that it's a very uh, uh, anti-green friendly energy policy. He, he, he's basically, you know, uh, in terms of issues of addressing, you know, climate change and, and technology, he's favoring, re, you know, building more oil refineries and limiting foreign investment in the energy sector, which could have serious implications for, you know, for Mexico's economy, because it recently was opened up for the first time. And now, you know, AMLO has been kind of squeezing the bolts. 
separate from that, and this is going to be true of a number of these different places in Latin America, you have this process of polarization. We see it in the U.S., we see it in the U.K., we see it in other places throughout Latin America, more and more. Uh, Chile, now this important country in South America, is about to have an election for presidency, and it's a very deeply polarized, you know, a very far-right candidate that's kind of, you know, extreme, let's say, by most measures, and a very far-left guy. And so, like we see here in the U.S., like we see in other places, increasingly the moderate, sort of the middle, are, are being crowded out, and, um, and it's happening in Latin America, too. We have the curious contrast of AMLO, uh, an authoritarian leader from the left in Mexico, Bolsonaro in Brazil, the Jair Bolsonaro, a right-wing populist, uh, you know, sort of kind of very curious because while they are right and left, they end up coming almost full circle. They have some similarities. Um, and a lot of it is like these populists blaming, you know, the opponents, the, any, you know, the conservatives or, or just whoever it might be, depending on the ilk. So, uh, again, uh, what, what we're seeing with Latin America, finally, one last chart I just want to show. Why is it important for us to be aware of it? It has been going through tremendous changes with uh, the role of China expanding in the region uh, tremendously. Uh, I have a table here that just uh, came out, I think, this past year. They're growing cloud. In terms of uh, investment, and I can't see that. Oh, yeah, Chinese state investment. What we see there in places like Venezuela, Brazil, Argentina, Ecuador, billions of dollars coming into the country from China, state enterprises that are investing in, in infrastructure, building things. Uh, the U.S., by contrast, we, you know, we struggle uh, to offer some aid and, you know, put together a few billion dollars to help with the Central American migration crisis. But on the whole, we don't have massive, you know, and certainly not by the U.S. government. Now, there are private investments, and that's not included in this map. But clearly, China is operating on a different level. They are using their political power to essentially uh, spread their tentacles. And today, they are the largest foreign investor in Peru, in Bolivia, uh, and uh, in, in many uh, others, the second or third largest. What kind of investments are they making, Carlos? And how strategic are those investments? Well, uh, they are in minerals and mines, uh, very strategic, of course. They, they are in natural resources that are essentially you know, critical for their own, uh, you know, industrial and, and manufacturing development. Uh, some some are raw materials, but primarily they're very, you know, uh, very much, uh, you know, minerals, uh, I would say. Uh, but other than that, uh, you know, China continues to be, you know, obviously exporting a massive quantity of, of manufactured goods into the region. And so, you know, it, it, you know, these are, these countries are also growing middle classes and growing consumer, um, you know, uh, societies. So today, you know, in, in, in Argentina, in Chile, in Brazil, in Mexico, large, you know, consumer uh, uh, groups, I guess. And what are they buying? Well, at the local Walmart, the same Chinese-made goods that we get here. Yeah. What I get out of this is that, um, you know, if you look at Africa, look at Latin America, for that matter, if you look at Asia, you get this kind of economic colonialism. Um, where, you know, China, Belt and Road is only a small part of it, really. Um, they're, they're trying to, you know, become um, a power, economic power everywhere. And that includes this kind of economic colonialism. And they buy the, the minerals, they buy the raw materials, they do, do uh, I know they're doing steel, for example, with iron ore uh, out of Brazil, you know, big deal. 
um, supplying steel all over South America and elsewhere. Uh, so they're, they're taking their manufacturing technology, you know, and applying it to those resources and becoming a power in so many ways. And we aren't. Yeah. And we aren't. We are yeah, not. Yeah. We are not doing that. And we don't have the, uh, what do you want to call it, the national will, the national interest. We rather think about um, immigration and, and racism at the border. And we see uh, we see Latin America as a combination of um, autocrats, uh, poverty, um, military coups, um, and and people who are unhappy where they are because of gangs and lack of personal security and want to come north. I mean, it, it's a polyglot. I would imagine, and you must know about this, um, that tourism by the United States. Uh, as opposed to, say, in the 30s and the 40s, where it was uh, so popular, travel down to Rio and enjoy the music, the people, the culture and all that. I imagine tourism isn't so hot right now between the, uh, and it's beyond COVID, of course, um, uh, between the United States and anywhere in Latin America. I also imagine that, you know, you see movies, there are movies on Netflix and Amazon of middle-class situations in um, Latin American countries, but I believe that those are being um, under under uh, underwritten by American producers and produced by American directors and all that. So it's it's kind of a copying of the, the Hollywood style. What I'm getting at is that our perceptions may not be accurate about what's going on, but I think what's going on is the Chinese. That's going on. And the other thing that's going on is the resultant uh, autocracies that are developing. And the question really is, is the US doing its job uh, under the concept of the Monroe Doctrine or really any other sense of noblesse oblige where we can help them? Um, and I suggest to you that it doesn't seem that way. Yeah. Well, you've raised a lot of very important topics there, and 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 and, and I do share your, your your perspective there. What I would say is this: Look, uh, real quickly, just to dispel uh, the notion you mentioned about tourism, it continues to be, particularly Mexico, is a popular destination, uh, and this is for people who just you know that's all they see. They will travel to Cancun or you know whatever it might be in Baja. Uh, that continues to be popular again, COVID with some restrictions. However, it has opened up uh, quicker than some had expected. But let me, as you talked about that, one of the things I want to really underscore is that today we have to realize that much like you can say about Asia, for example, and about Africa, these places that we often have this sense that they're all impoverished and poor and underdeveloped, and yes, they are, but at the same time, they are also increasingly globalized and connected. What do I mean by that? We have global societies. Uh, we have communities through, particularly virtual communities through the internet now, so that you know, emerging, rising middle classes in these developing world settings in Latin America uh, today are more connected, more aware of what's happening in the world, and, and building bridges in different ways. Um, and as you know, as a professor, I teach, of course, young leaders and, and, and future. Uh, you know, these days I'm, I'm teaching minimally as I, I have other work uh, on the plate. But for the most part, what I want to say is that today, those who are young and, and, and let's say getting education, and in Latin America, it's obviously a small minority, a more elite, but it's there, it's real. They are, again, more aware of the world than I would say Americans are about the world. Uh, they know more about it, they're more connected into it, and they obviously are hungry for it and what it offers. Uh, let me, uh, having said that, let me shift for a moment and say one other thing. It's interesting that right now in the U.S. we're seeing this dramatic, uh, you know, uh, battle over access to safe abortion that's being threatened. Uh, 
in the region of Latin America, interestingly, these past years has seen what's often been referred to as a green wave. Uh, the word is marea verde, like a green wave. And it's a women's movement that has helped to uh, deliver groundbreaking reforms and progress on reproductive health and rights throughout Latin America. So you've got in Uruguay and Argentina and even in Mexico, rights that are pretty much now you know, uh, stronger than what you find in the US and, and so on. Well, all that to say that Latin America, again, like parts of Asia, particularly, you know, dynamic and emerging places, like parts of Africa, are today increasingly global societies. And curiously, they're picking and choosing, I think, in ways, you know, what parts they want from modernization, from globalization, and how they can adapt it to their own, you know, mixture of local, of, of you know, maybe whether it's, you know, and we say Latin America, but at the end of the day, people identify more by their own national identity in the case of latin american countries so they may be peruvian first and and we don't see like in some other countries as much of a complex uh, let's say ethnic uh or you know differences so that people again they're very and they vary by country but there's a strong sense of national identity throughout i would say latin america but, but carlos what what is the what is the common denominator that makes governance and democracy so fragile, so shattered in so many of these places. What is the common denominator that makes autocrats come and go one after the other and, and juntas and coups? It just doesn't seem stable. What is it? Is it something yeah. south of the equator? What is it? You know, look, I wish there was a single answer and there's not. I mean, there are continual debates about this. You know, what is it? Why is it characterized, as you said, by political violence and history? And for some, it goes back to maybe the legacy of colonialism and how it destroyed and it set up, you know, particularly the Spanish very hierarchical structures, uh, how the new society they created was inherently a class society. So you've got power entrenched in certain interests. Uh, and then beyond that, depending on the countries, essentially you have societies that are characterized by oligarchies, small elites that have kept the power and it's often racially, you know, divided as well again with some interesting variations for some it is the just the product of another product let me rephrase that it's, the, it's maybe the condition that latin america in terms of the economic history basically got the raw end of the deal because they were the uh the places where the powerful colonizing powers you know established you know the trade power extracting raw materials again that story went on for a long time it still exists in some measures but it's not enough to say that that's the whole reason. It has changed. But what I'm getting at there is that these relationships that were established, whether it has to do with you know political power or economic power, uh, you know, have simply hindered some of the development. Now there are other arguments more controversial, and I don't like them myself. I don't think they hold much water. But there are some that are more cultural. Somehow they they're lazier. It's the hot sun. It's the climate. And at the end of the day. There's too much variation in Latin America, where you have actually some countries that have done reasonably well and that have done, it's an interesting laboratory for democratic development. And especially, I would say, at the grassroots level, at the local level, maybe what we see at the presidential level is not always very pretty. Uh, and the places I described at the beginning, these are some of the tough cases, you know, in Central America, poor, you know, history of, of, of violence, et cetera. Uh, even Chile, while it's polarized, I mean, it, it's also still got a, let's say, a more higher level of democratic development. 
but no easy answers to these things, Jerry, but we have to study the history. Now let's let's look, look at, at the future, though, Carlos. Let's look at the future. Sure. I mean, because we have certain bright spots. I mean, for example, you know, you could go down into uh, any of these countries and they get American TV. Um, you know, they, they can watch um, Netflix movies. They can be on Netflix movies. They're, they're kind of, um, what do you want to kind of call it, a bedroom community in many ways to the U.S. Um, and they, you know, as you say, they can order things, they can order products from China, from the U.S. and have them in their homes. They can develop a middle class, and in some places there is a middle class, but, but they don't have it together yet. Most of these places I think you're talking about, either in domestically or internationally. So the question is, with the exposure and the awareness you're talking about, you know, where the, the average person, maybe he can see further, maybe he can see further than the average American. I agree with that. But where is it going? What do you expect? Let me give you a 10-year horizon. Um, what do you think, Carlos, is going to happen? And, and we can talk about specific countries or we can talk about the whole continent, but where do you think it's going? Well, I would say you're going to see some patterns that have been going on exacerbating. And what do I mean by that? On some level, it is uh, increasing, well, the, not just polarization, but more uh, concentration of wealth. And, and what I mean by that is that Latin America, to begin with, is already unequal societies, already wealth concentrated. And so the bottom line is that those who have wealth that are globally connected, who obviously, they're going to do very well. They're going to continue to be sort of globe trotters, if you will. And it could even be just regionally. There's a lot of wealth that just simply is there and, you know, and, and yet it's concentrated. Uh, and, and again, these are generalization stereotypes, but, but I'm, I'm just making a sweeping observation. So we're going to continue to see that. Some people are going to be doing very well. I think you're going to see, given all the political chaos that we continue to describe, it's not going to go well for many people. It's going to be tough because when you don't have coherent public policy, continuity, predictability, investments flounder, if money gets siphoned away, nobody, you know, governments are corrupt. I mean, and, and, they, and this is not solving the problem. And so the result is it languishes and, and the potential that is, you know, is there is not being, you know, harnessed and, 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 and there are a lot of losers. So it's going to be grim on, on one hand, but I, I guess I, I don't want to paint a picture where everything is going into some apocalyptic hell. No, because there are a lot of dynamic areas and a lot of interesting stories, a lot of interesting urban, you know, renewal and development. Uh, and I think what you're going to see is that a lot of frustration with the macro political system and the leaders. But much like in the United States, you're going to see some, some areas doing well, even some regions of countries doing better than others. You know, Mexico, the big country to the south, it really is, you could say certainly two countries, but maybe even three. You have the whole part that's connected to the U.S., deeply integrated, manufacturing, modern, you know, middle class, da, da, da. Then you have this very separate part in the South connected to Central America, underdeveloped, marginalized, impoverished, limited opportunities. That's you know going to continue, and 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 unfortunately, those are continuing to to separate even more. But look, you could talk about that in many other settings too. But it's happening in Latin America, so that's, oh, part, that's my. You know, I mean, I know that you know we have to look at this country by country because they're all different, different cultures, um, you know, different arrangements, different histories, all that. However, um, let me put this last question to you. Um, it's clear that the security of the United States is dependent, at least in part, on what's happening south of the border. 
it is, it is not necessarily a good thing to see China moving in and making all those huge investments, um, taking uh, strategic materials, resources away from, you know, the possibility of American development. Um, and in the past, we've made a lot of mistakes. But if we look at our foreign policy right now, in, in a, broad, a broad sweep of it, okay, what should we be doing? In a perfect world, with a government maybe that's more together than what we have now, what would we do to deal with, with Latin America? Uh, how would we develop it in a way so that it finds its natural course, you know, its, its best development possibilities uh, in terms of investment and foreign policy, uh, and in terms of enhancing the security of the continent in general. It, it's always uncomfortable to find out that, you know, a few hundred miles away from the, the southern border, there's violence and um, terrible things happening, people suffering and a kind of nightmare life. We can't afford to have that. It's just troublesome. Um, so I guess my question is, what can the United States do? Um, can the United States do anything? Maybe we just don't have the ability to do this. But if we did, if we had a strong foreign policy, what would we look for and what would we do to achieve it? Oh, that's a, that's a big uh, Herculean task. Uh, I mean, and, and again, it's a, it's a challenge that has continued to confront um, you know, the U.S. for quite some time. Uh, let me step back to remind us that after 9-11, or actually right before the 9-11 attack in the year 2000, we had an interesting critical juncture. We had the election in the U.S. of George W. Bush, Texas governor, you know, uh, his brother, he had a sister-in-law that, uh, that was Mexican, and, you know, and, and he understood Mexico because he's from Texas. And in Mexico, you had the election of a brand new president, Vicente Fox, who was a opposition leader, a, you know, a, himself a cowboy of sorts, a businessman. What I'm getting at is that there was this window of opportunity for the U.S. and Mexico to develop a, a closer, and, and then both of them began discussing a guest worker program. Can you imagine, like, legal workers coming from Mexico? Uh, they go to Canada, by the way, but not to the U.S. I mean, but 9-11 made all that obviously go away. And, and since then, the U.S. has, U.S. foreign policy, I'm speaking of, has basically neglected Latin America. Now... It's breathing down our neck. We have the migrations, you know, for years now, the caravans of past years. Um, and bottom line is, you know, what can the U.S. do? Well, in a curious way, if we look at the Trump uh, years, that was a strategy of, like, not too much, kind of look the other way, but as long as they, you know, play ball, and in the case of Mexico, playing pretty dirty, steal the southern border, take care of that, you know, stop those migrants from coming, or else, you know, it was a very strong arm. But let me suggest this. If, the only real solution ultimately has got to be a multi-pronged one with many different things at different layers at different levels. Some of it does have to be a commitment to help address the root causes of why are people coming here. It's the poverty, it's the crime, and again, there are no simple answers to those. But if you don't address it, it's not going to go away. And we have a responsibility because those Central American countries that we've mentioned that are in crisis, that have all these gangs, well, guess what? Those gangs were formed in the prisons in Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles uh, when we basically had a huge wave of immigrants from the civil war that we had responsibility, not just civil war, but the other conflicts in Central America. The United States has, I guess, I'm, I'm suggesting a legacy of, 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 uh, of responsibility you know, for some of the crisis. So it's incumbent on those ga and those gangs part, affect part us. Those gangs have connections yeah, yeah. in the U.S. And, and they make trouble for us. And finally, you know, uh, uh, along the same line, there's humanitarian issues like Haiti. 
where we get we get drawn into it on a humanitarian basis, and it's better to prevent it before it, it goes to that level, right? Sure, sure. But but let me just say this quickly that I mean the U.S. obviously it has a role, and yet because of its history and the baggage that comes with it, and because of the recent story of Donald Trump, who obviously Latin America saw was you know he was rather offensive, and 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 you know he was he was like the ugly American. I want to say, and we've talked about this in other shows, there's a healthy dose of skepticism. In other words, the U.S. cannot come down to Latin America and say, hey, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to solve it. No, it needs to be a little more modest. Again, like a lot of reform, you know, reform policy in some areas, but it, it needs to be working be, below the just government to government. It, it's more people to people, more grassroots, more you know, supporting NGOs. Because today, Latin America, again, harnessing these new technologies, seeing how the world works, seeing Europe, seeing the U.S., today there is a growth and proliferation of civil society groups, of NGOs. And so people are solving their own problems because the governments aren't. And so uh, what I'm getting at there is that we need to see that the solutions are not just the leaders meet. Yes, they do need to meet, and then it's better if they meet than if they don't. But ultimately, it's got to be people to people. It's got to be, you know, I don't know, just a many more tentacles going in uh, and a little bit of modesty on the part of the U.S. of, of understanding that, uh, you know, you can't bring all the solutions. You have to help them help themselves. Yeah. And at the end of the day, there's a, a, a huge uh, supply of uh, minerals and other resources. There are huge possibilities for agriculture um, and a huge consumer market. Uh, so all of this could be positive for us, and we ought to preserve it and uh, develop it in, in, in the most, um, you know, um, human and natural and positive and friendly way. That's what we should do. That, that's just my, my perception of what you're saying. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Very Carlos. Well. Great to talk to you. I look forward to our next conversation. I look forward to your next show, of course. And um, I really like that uh, that photograph behind you. It's beautiful. It's it's it, it is more than beautiful. It is a statement. Thank you very much, Carlos. Good afternoon. Oh, happy holidays. Mm -hmm.